and welcome to the AFS Exchange. My name is Kate Mulvihill. The AFS Exchange is a podcast by AFS USA, where we open the door to hear from members of our AFS family. This is a place to have conversations, exchanges, with AFS host families, students, volunteers, and educators. During these exchanges, we will hear from our guests on how their lives have been impacted by AFS. What lessons have they taken away from their experience abroad or their experience with hosted students in the United States? Today, I am talking to Linda Shepard-Salzer, an AFS returnee who went to Paraguay. She is also a host mother, an accessibility advocate, an environmentalist, and a Spanish speaker. We're going to hear more about Paraguay, a country in South America that's about the size of California. It's landlocked and surrounded by Argentina, Brazil, and Bolivia. Now, Linda didn't apply to AFS with the goal of going to Paraguay. When she went in 1980, AFS applicants listed countries or languages that they were interested in, and AFS did the rest. Linda just noted that she wanted to go to a Spanish-speaking country, and AFS found a match for her in Paraguay. I started planning this episode with the goal of learning more about Paraguay, but I got so much more out of it and had a great conversation with Linda, and I'm looking forward to sharing it with the listeners of the AFS Exchange. My name is Linda Shepard Salser. I currently live in Boston, Massachusetts, in the U.S. And how did you first hear about AFS? The town I grew up in, in rural Missouri, hosted a, a number of students over the years. It was a fairly small town. A lot of times we knew the host families, and the school was small enough that we, you know, were certainly aware of the exchange students, and it was kind of a big deal <laughs> uh, in a small town. So unlike how AFS works now, Linda did not select her destination herself. So at the time I applied, at that time you put preference, but you weren't the one choosing. You could put your preference, but there was no guarantee of where we'd, you would go. I put my preference as Spanish speaking because I had had more Spanish in high school than French. Linda knew a little about Paraguay prior to going on program. Um, when I found out that's where I was going, I was really excited that I was accepted. And I remembered from geography class where Paraguay was in the center of South America. <laughs> um, and I knew that, you know, there was the Spanish speaking, but not exclusively Spanish speaking. Yes, it's more than just Spanish spoken in Paraguay, but more on that later. And that's about all I knew. And that was back in the days when we didn't have the internet. And you looked things up in the encyclopedia <laughs> um, uh, or the library, uh, other sources at the library. So... And there was not a lot of information at our local library about Paraguay. <laughs> or maybe you'd, you know, read something in National Geographic or something like that. So I didn't have a whole lot of information before I went other than, you know, a blurb that's provided by AFS and then a letter from my host family, you know, shortly before I left to go. But I still have it somewhere with a photo and everything. In Missouri, Linda was one of four siblings. In Paraguay, she was one of six. And I was 17 at the time I went, and I had five host siblings between 13 and 18. She was placed in Asuncion, the capital of Paraguay and its largest city. The population of Asuncion is about 525,000, which is about the size of Sacramento, California, or Kansas City, Missouri. I was from a small town, you know, um, so that was a change going from a uh, town of 12,000 to a, a city. 
In her home, in addition to her host parents and siblings, there were a maid and a driver who would come by. They basically went grocery shopping every day. Um, No microwave. Very few canned goods at that time. I think peaches and peas were the only thing that we had in cans while I was there that I was aware of. Um, So most of it was fresh um, and prepared daily and, and not very much in the way of frozen, you know washing clothes by hand. (laughs) My host mother um, taught at the time. She was a philosophy and history professor. So she worked outside the home, which um, my natural mother did not most of the time I was growing up. She did briefly, but um, so that, that was, uh, you know, because at first when you think about that, it's like, oh, wow, you must have lived with a rich family. And yes, on Paraguayan standards, they were fairly well-to-do, but the, you know, there was a lot more to do. <laughs> Please note that this was also 40 years ago, and things are different now. Many homes have the amenities of a microwave, fridge, washing machine, etc. So, Linda was living in Asuncion. What was the community like there? There was a lot of intergenerational activities. So, my host family belonged to a local club, and there would be dances and parties where there were you know, young children and grandparents all out there dancing and interacting, which in the U.S. there might be like family gatherings where that was the case. When I thought of dances in the U.S., it was a school dance. (laughs) And it was, you know, there were some chaperones there, but it was, you know, mostly a pretty limited age range um, and, you know, a pretty limited scope of music. (laughs) But in Paraguay, there were polkas and waltzes and you know, fairly recent music and variety of languages all at the same event, which was which was different. I come from a family that's not terribly demonstrative. And in Paraguay, there's, you know, hugging and kissing on both cheeks every time you say hello and goodbye to someone practically. And just in general, more physicality, you know, people hanging around with their arm around somebody's shoulder and, and things like that. So a little more about the culture of Paraguay. So earlier, Linda had mentioned that Spanish was not the only language spoken in Paraguay. So there's Guarani and there's Spanish or Castilian, as they call it in Paraguay. Guarani and Spanish are the two official languages of Paraguay. For a very brief overview, Guarani is an indigenous language spoken by people in South America that has been around in varying forms for almost 2000 years. Spanish was brought by the conquistadores in the 1500s and was the only official language until Guarani was granted status in 1992. It is the only indigenous language of the Americas whose speakers include a large proportion of non-indigenous people. About 70% of the population in Paraguay can speak both Guarani and Spanish to an extent. And then the local mixture, mixture of the two, is called Jopara. And so what a lot of people really spoke was Jopara. Yopara is a language composed of elements from Spanish and Guarani. The majority of Paraguayans, especially of younger generations and those who live in urban areas, can speak Yopara. It is spelled J-O-P-A-R-A or Y-O-P-A-R-A. So this was all new to me, and I enjoyed learning more about Guarani and Yopara from Linda during our conversation. I also learned a bit about some popular dishes in Paraguay. So a very popular food in Paraguay is called sopa paraguaya, 
which literally translates to Paraguayan soup, but it's not soup. It's basically moist cornbread with onions and cheese. And so I've, I've adapted that recipe and I make a gluten-free vegan version of that. Chipa is another Paraguayan food. And some of these, you know, some Brazilians and Argentinians claim that they eat them too, but they're really Paraguayan foods. <laughs> but, uh, you know, they, they have their versions. Chipa is, it's sort of like a bagel with manioc, um, which is also called yucca, a root vegetable. Chipa which looks delicious, is a type of cheese-flavored roll, sometimes formed in the shape of a ring. It's made with starch from manioc, also called cassava in English. And there were usually women who would walk around with a basket of it on their head, going door-to-door to sell cheapo. And in the community, you know, a bus would stop and somebody, a cheapo salesperson would get on and walk through the bus selling cheapo to people as you know a snack and then get off at the next stop and then go on and do something else linda's time at school in paraguay was very different from her experiences at home in missouri uniforms third year physics and a bus trip to brazil in paraguay um, i went to a a private all-girls school that my host sisters also attended my host brothers went to a a neighborhood school (laughs) Um, but so not co-ed um, Catholic, all-girls school. I was not raised Catholic. Um, <laughs> we wore uniforms there, which was different for me. In my hometown, you know, we had some choice of classes. Um, that was not the case in Paraguay. Everybody in a grade took the same set of classes. And so I was taking third-year physics with never having had physics in English before. <laughs> I was taking chemistry, not having had chemistry in the U.S. I was taking third-year Latin from Spanish. I was taking French from Spanish, and I had had French from English. I had religion class. I had P.E. class, um, history of Paraguay, Spanish literature, cosmography, planets and stars and stuff, (laughs) Um, which was new to me. I wasn't familiar with the word prior to that. Yeah, I wasn't either. According to Collins Dictionary, cosmography is the science dealing with the structure of the universe as a whole and of its related parts. Geology, geography, and astronomy are branches of cosmography. And the fact that we wore school uniforms, we didn't have to worry about what we were going to wear the next day. We just had to make sure, you know, we had a you know, summer uniform and a winter uniform. It wasn't like, oh, you know, does this top go with these jeans and who am I trying to impress today? But, you know, some of the some of my classmates, you know, took some little liberties, but we did have uniform inspections every once in a while. And so if you didn't have one of the pieces of your uniform, you were like passing it through the window to the other class. (laughs) The winter uniform was a a white long sleeve blouse and a kind of gray green jumper with a belt. And so that was often an item that was not always there (laughs) um, for some of the students, and white knee socks and black penny loafers. And then the summer uniform, which was kind of, you know, spring and fall, was a short sleeve white pullover top and then a pleated white skirt. Linda got to see a bit of South America while she was in Paraguay, including a trip with her grade to Brazil. My high school class 
took a school trip and it was a busload of students and a busload of mothers. <laughs> and we went to Sao Paulo and Rio de Janeiro. And uh, so that was a pretty big deal. Uh, it was pretty much students in one and, and moms in the other. They figured we couldn't get in too much trouble on the bus. But once we got where we were going, <laughs> Sao Paulo, we went shoe shopping. That's the specialty there. And Rio, we went to Copacabana and, and uh, the, the Christ, the Redeemer statue on Sugarloaf. Um, so we played tourist, ate on the beach. and, and uh, <laughs> She also took some trips with her host family. So typically in Paraguay, everybody goes away Easter week. They have that week off school and most, a lot of people have it off work. And so we went across Paraguay to Foz de Iguazú which is waterfalls on the border of Argentina, Brazil, and Paraguay. We also went to Sechiquedas, which is Portuguese for Seven Falls, which is also on the border with Brazil. And my host father worked for the hydroelectric dam that was being built, which did away with some of those falls, um, which was interesting. But I got to see them before they disappeared. <laughs> So that was the 1980s. Now in the 2020s, how has Linda's program affected her skills and interests today? First of all, she has maintained her Spanish throughout the years. She has also become more open-minded and is able to see things from different perspectives. This has been especially helpful in her job. So I'm a travel trainer, which most people are not necessarily familiar with. Um, so it means that I teach older adults and persons with disabilities how to safely use public transportation um, in the greater Boston area. There's some opportunity for creativity and communication, you know, figuring out how to provide information based on the, the learning styles of the folks we work with. Linda provides training to people in the greater Boston area, at schools, senior centers, her office, and out in the community. She gives orientations on trip planning, how to ask for help, how to read maps and schedules, and more. Yes, this is a job. If you live in a city with a public transportation system, there are likely travel trainers like Linda who help people navigate public transit safely. Sometimes can use my Spanish. I, if I've got trainees that that's their first language or their preferred language. You know, Boston is an international city, so we've got folks from a lot of different places. The other day I was presenting for work and to a group of what turned out to be over 40 people. Uh, I had no idea there were going to be that many there. I got there a little bit early. And while I was waiting in the reception area, I'm hearing all kinds of Spanish. And it's like, okay, I need to do this bilingually. Um, normally, I would allow some extra time for that. <laughs> um, but, you know, I pulled it off and just talked a little faster in both languages um, and presented in both. I don't get to use it all of the time, but it certainly comes in handy and I can switch to it easily. Other jobs that I've had, I used it more regularly. In other jobs, she has worked with immigrants and refugees and been able to use her Spanish. Um, one of the jobs I had after I came back, I worked with immigrants and refugees, many of whom were Spanish speakers. Um, and that's part of how I got that job. I've done some vol various volunteer things using my Spanish and some subtitles for a couple of movies. 
in Spanish and, um, you know, translated some brochures and information on websites uh, into Spanish on a volunteer basis and things like that, primarily related to disabilities, because that's uh, the field I work in. And a lot of times that type of information may not be readily available in other languages. But it's not just the concrete language skills that she's taken away from her time in Paraguay. Also just being more broad-minded and uh, inclusive and kind of being able to see things from different perspectives, which, you know, also comes in handy with my work, you know, with folks with disabilities. Like, okay, I need to think about other ways that I can present this information or how can I look at it from different angles and think about how someone else might be perceiving it or what they might need based on how they take in information, whether it's a different language or just a different way of learning. Knowing how difficult it was for me at first, even having had some Spanish, if I come across someone who, for whom English is not their first language and they're needing some help, I'm going to go out of my way to try to help them if I can, <laughs> you know, and think outside the box. Okay, maybe I don't speak the language they speak, but can I show them a map or do I have photographs that I can share or things like that or draw diagrams or, you know, how else besides spoken or, or written language can we communicate if we don't have a common language or do we have some common language that's not the first language for either of us that might work. Another thing that I think came out of my AFS experience is an interest in the environment and how it's all connected and, you know, everything we do affects the whole planet you know, as far as that. And so helping people use transit if they're able to, you know, is also maybe taking getting some cars off the road or reducing some trips as far as the environmental piece. While these small changes do make an impact, Linda knows that it'll take a lot more to affect lasting positive change on our environment. And that means cooperation. And with climate change, it's, it's affecting us all. And it, we can't do little piecemeal things here and there and expect, you know, to make a difference. We have to work together. <laughs> and the more that we have practice working together and interacting in positive ways for whatever purpose, that will help. And people that know other cultures and other languages and can be the leaders in things that require global cooperation and, and uh, effort. Linda has contributed to making positive change by being a host parent. Her brother's wife is an AFS volunteer in Wisconsin, and a few years ago, she shared a profile of a student from Sweden who she thought would be a good match for Linda's family. And so she would see the, the profiles of the students that needed host families with our first AFS daughter. Um, she was like, uh, we've got a student that you need to look at the profile. I, we think you guys should host this student. And we looked at the profile and... So she's also gluten-free and I'm gluten-free. And they knew that it might be difficult to find a, a host family that understood her diet. We got the, the information about her and it was about a month before they were supposed to arrive. We talked about it and surprisingly, my husband said, okay, <laughs> things went from there. So we hosted her and some of my concerns um, going in, you know, why we hadn't applied to host sooner was I kind of felt like mostly they were looking for families that had siblings in the same school to help them, you know, meet friends and, and find their way around and things like that. And I discovered that that was not a requirement. <laughs> 
Yes. Having a teenager in the home is not a requirement for being a host parent. Families can look like a couple with no children, empty nesters, or parents with children in the home. Members of the LGBTQ community can be host parents. Single adults and single parents are also welcome. I also thought the fact that we were vegan, they might not be excited about placing someone in a, in a household with a special diet. Our arrangement was that our household would remain vegan, but when we went out or when she was hanging out with her friends or at school, that she could eat whatever she chose. And if we were going out, we were obviously going to pay for you know, her meal, whether it was vegan or not. <laughs> and when the student returned to Sweden, she became a vegan. And years later, she moved back to the U.S. and ended up marrying a friend she met during her exchange year. He was one of her first friends that she met at school. Then we took a year off after that, and then we hosted again. And again, it was my sister-in-law who said, oh, we got another profile that we think you should look at. And our second daughter from Finland, also special diet. She was vegan. And so that was a good match. So my final question to Linda was, why do you think intercultural exchange is important? Um, just to broaden everybody's perspective and to understand that we're not the center of the universe, <laughs> you know, just learning about their own culture more. Because a lot of times you learn about things by sharing it or teaching, sharing it with others or teaching it to others. I got asked some interesting questions. You know, is it true that families in the U.S. have robots? <laughs> I got questions the other way, either coming back or when I was about to come, you know. Do they live in houses, you know, and things like that? Then part of the process, too, is when you come back, sharing information. So most of us at that time would come back and do a slideshow for the local Lions Club or Kiwanis Club or Rotary or, or, you know, whoever or the church group. And so having the experience yourself, but also sharing it when you get back, like, hey, I'm local and I did this and this is what I learned. And it might encourage, you know, other people to go on exchange. And it's, it's very different from being a tourist somewhere because you get to know the real people in their daily life and that sort of thing. And not just the person that works in the hotel or the person that serves your meal and things like that. So that's, that's a huge piece of it is really becoming part of the community. That was Linda Shepard-Salzer, an AFS attorney to Paraguay, based in Boston. A big thank you to Linda for chatting with me about her experiences in Paraguay and how the skills she learned on program are still relevant 40 years later. I hope you also learned a bit about Paraguay and its history, languages, and culture. Thank you for listening to the AFS Exchange. I'm Kate Mulvihill. Are you interested in going abroad with AFS like Linda did? Or hosting a student with AFS? Head to afsusa.org to learn more. Let us know what you thought of this episode by sending a message to podcast at afsusa.org. You can also rate and review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. You can subscribe there as well. Season two of the AFS Exchange will bring you conversations with hosted students, educators, host families, volunteers, and more. This podcast was created by Kate Mulvihill. Social media by Julie Ball.